Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. And you can think of me as the captain to Sarah's Tennille. You might have to Google that one, Sarah. I, I absolutely will have to Google that that's one. That's well before your time. Okay. But this week on the show, eight months into 2020, I can't believe it, Mike, but it's time to debrief. To do that, we're joined by Goldman Sachs Asset Management's co-head of fundamental equity to discuss how the firm has approached the year and also how it's positioned for the future. And of course, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets. And Sarah, as you said, uh, great guest this week to talk about the equity markets, because I think the big question on a lot of people's minds this year is, has this market gotten sort of detached from the fundamentals? So we have a very much a fundamentals expert this week. She, as you said, is the co-head of fundamental equities at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Her name is Katie Koch. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, Katie, let's get right into it. You know, as we've all noticed, the valuation expansion in the market this year has been astounding, given the economic uncertainty and the sort of nasty recession that we've already seen, and and who knows how long that's going to last. Of course, at the same time, you have real interest rates are negative. It looks like interest rates will stay low, possibly negative on a real basis after inflation for a long time. I'll phrase it as simply as possible. Does the market make sense to you based on the fundamentals or um, have what we've seen this year, does it trouble you how, how aggressive the valuation expansion has gotten? The way that I would look at it is when you think about the markets overall, they're effectively flat on the year. And so a lot of people will look at that and say, how is that possible given all of the you know challenging news that's out there that you alluded to? And I want I want to make three points on this connected to the headline that, yeah, we, we can get behind um, the sensibility of markets if we're selective about opportunities. Um, and so, you know, three things to observe is that while the market's flat on the year, there's a lot kind of happening underneath that really unexciting return. Um, so we've had a huge drawdown and, and a tremendous recovery, as you know, that are involved in getting us flat. The median S&P 500 stock is still, you know, somewhere around 20% off its high. And there's a little group of companies we all know called the FANGs, which are up over 30% on the year, while actually the rest of the S&P 500 is still down about 5%. And then, of course, we also have this wide gap between growth and value, um, although that's narrowed a little bit in the last couple of weeks, which hopefully we'll talk about. So yeah, the market's flat on the year, but then under that, lots of different stuff happening. And so we can find great value, but you, you have to really hunt for it. The second comment I would make quickly would be around valuations. You alluded to the fact that valuations are demanding. 
Um, and in fact, the U.S. market is trading right now on a 22 times 12-month forward multiple, which puts it in about the 95th percentile of its, its most expensive. I want to make two balancing comments to that just to put people's fears at ease um, about how expensive the market is. The first is we really need to look at those valuations in other low inflation periods. Um, and so actually, if we look at low inflation regimes, today's valuations are really just above median levels. Um, and then in addition, of course, we, we do have depressed earnings because we're in a recession, as you mentioned. And so that's elevating P.E. levels, too. And then the second point I want to make is equities relative uh, to other asset classes. So we look at something called the implied equity risk premium, which is just a, a fancy way of talking about how expensive equities are to other stuff like bonds. And it's at a very attractive 3.8% premium. And that's only been higher about a third of the time over history. Um, and it certainly stands, for example, in sharp contrast to the negative equity risk premium we saw during the tech bubble. So yes, you know, valuations are demanding, but it's a little bit more of a, a nuanced story than that. And again, if you're selective, you can find opportunity. And then the final comment I, I want to make is that I do believe, and we do believe um, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and on our equity team, that regardless um, of, of any of the stuff we just talked about, equity markets really do need continued monetary support and fiscal support um, to, to be able to hold in at these levels. And they also need earnings to come through, at least to meet the, the low expectations out there for earnings. And of course, we're in the middle of earnings season now, so we should get a lot of interesting data on that front. So let's get back to that dispersion idea that you said. You look under the surface of the stock market, and clearly not every stock is the same. Not every stock is a fang stock. So over the last eight months, throughout the coronavirus era that we've been living in, how have you guys been trying to find value within the market? This is a great question. And one of the things that the, what the, the coronavirus environment has done um, is created a lot of differentiation between business models. And so there really has never been a more important time to embrace active management and navigate which of those business models are going to win and, and which ones are, are going to lose. And so I, I think that stock-specific dynamics really matter now more than ever. And we're seeing huge differentiation within narrow parts of the market. And this really creates tremendous opportunities for, for active managers. So I want to give you a couple of examples to help us understand that. So let's take restaurants, relatively narrow category. Um, we've been focused on the millennial preference for value, digital and delivery for a really long time. And COVID, of course, is accelerating a lot of these trends and drawing in more demographics beyond the, the millennial consumer as we have to consume more things online. Now, in restaurants, on the one hand, you have a company like Domino's, and we think of Domino's as a technology company that happens to deliver pizza. 75% of their sales are, are digital. Um, they reported earnings recently, same store sales up 16% year over year, um, and the share price reacting very positively on the year. On the other hand, in the same category, you have a franchise like Darden Restaurants. They own a bunch of brands, including you know, Olive Garden, which probably most people have heard of. Um, they are a dine-in establishment. The delivery and digital sales is very limited. They're reporting same-store sales down uh, 47%, and of course, the stock's reacting quite negatively on the year. So that gives you a sense of how important in this environment it is to distinguish between business models. 
Another example would be big box retailers, and many of them uh, were really struggling before COVID because of Amazonification of the retail market that's taken place over the last decade. Uh, however, there are a couple of big box retailers that are succeeding despite Amazon and uh, and despite the recession that we're in. The markers of those winning companies are are really two things. They usually have products that are in demand during quarantine, uh, and second, they have tremendous e-commerce strategies. The pandemic is accelerating e-commerce trends that were already in place. And as Toby um, Lutka, who's the CEO of Shopify, has said, e-commerce has made a 10-year jump in a matter of months. And so on the one hand, you have a company like Best Buy, which is an electronics retailer. They have sales um, that are up year over year, both domestically and internationally. Now, why? First, they have that relevant product set for quarantine. They have the largest product category of sales for computing, working from home, um, appliances, because we're eating more at home, and tablets, because we're, we're learning from home. So great product set for the environment. And second, they have a tremendous e-commerce footprint. Their online sales have grown 255% versus last year, um, and they've even sustained that at close to 190% since stores have reopened. And the stock's obviously reacting positively on that. So that's a winner. And then on the other hand, we have a plethora of undifferentiated mall-based retailers. Uh, sales are down more than 50% in most cases. They're facing, uh, many of them are facing bankruptcies on the product side. They're not selling particularly differentiated products or products that are in demand during quarantine, a lot of clothing. And as, as you probably would recognize, we're not all going out and buying new clothing unless it's uh, sweatpants. Um, and then on the the, the e-commerce um, footprint side, really, they, they've done too little too late. So those give you some examples of how um, there is a lot of bifurcation in the market between winning and losing business models. Um, this recession is really different from any other recession we've seen. But if you're selective and you can get on get behind the right business models at the right valuations, there really should be tremendous opportunities here uh, for active managers. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So, Sarah, a lot of great points in there. You know, I, I, Katie, I especially like the point about Best Buy. I know personally I've been looking to upgrade my TV during the pandemic. <laughs> but so, Katie, talk us through then how your team looks at those giant gorillas in the room, uh, the top five stocks in the S&P, you know, your Apple, Amazon, uh, Alphabet, uh, Microsoft, uh, you know, Taking up a record weight in, in indexes like the S&P, I think, last I checked, something between a quarter and a fifth of the S&P was just those five stocks. I mean, does it 
lead you to want to underweight those super richly valued heavyweight stocks uh, and look for those value stocks like the ones you mentioned in retail and, and restaurants? Or is it the type of environment where you really can't afford to underweight these big names? We think the the Fangs are, are great franchises. We own some of them, but we do believe that investors would be well served to diversify beyond them in, in the hunt for future tech leaders. Um, so a couple of points to, to make here. Um, as you know, many U.S. investors and a lot of people listening to your program have embraced passive investing. And what I would observe at the outset here is that we need to consider whether passive investing has, in fact, become too aggressive. Um, because to your point, there's lots of concentration in a little number of companies. So it's about 22% of the market cap in the top 1% of the names. That exceeds the 18% we reached in, in 2000. Um, there's lots of, of, of different you know, ways of looking at this, but another way to put it into context for people is that the four largest, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, currently have a market capitalization that's bigger than the entire country of Japan. Uh, they're worth just shy of $6 trillion, while Japan's equity market's worth $5.84 trillion. You know, despite the, the sharpest recession on record, these companies have added more than a third to their market values in, in 2020. And I think we really do need to pause and ask ourselves this question, you know, is it justified and, and will it persist? So let's break it down this way. There are some real positives for these companies. So on the one hand, they've got the cleanest balance sheets uh, within the market. That's the, the first point I would make, uh, more than $260 billion of net cash. Um, lower leverage than the rest of the market, better liquidity and visibility. Uh, the second point I would make is that they do have strong growth prospects. Their near-term growth expectations are about 15% versus 8% for the median S&P 500 company. And they're catering towards trends with both secular and cyclical tailwinds like cloud, e-commerce, and, and digital payments. So those are all, you know, very positive. And I'd also just mention from a valuation perspective, you know, these are valuations are just not as demanding as they were at the, the peak of, of the tech bubble. And these stocks are driven not just by long-term growth expectations, which we saw a lot more of in, in 2000, but actually by strong realized profitability, again, lower leverage and all these other markers of quality. Um, I'd also say, you know, something we should give them credit for is that they've shown offensive as well as defensive characteristics. They were leaders in the market correction and also the rebound, which, you know, generally warrants higher valuations. So those are all some reasons to feel good ab about the fangs. Um, however, as I stated at the outset, I do think we need to consider the possibility of um, that we need to diversify beyond them and that passive has become too aggressive. So on the other hand, I, I want to point out some, some balancing comments to that. I do think there could be some clouds forming on the horizon, which could threaten their dominance going forward. And this should mo motivate investors to, to diversify beyond the fangs. There's tremendous turnover um, historically in the tech ecosystem. Over the last 23 years, the largest tech company by market cap has changed eight different times. Um, market leaders have historically not really been able to maintain their leadership positions for more than five or six years. So a decade ago, it was Cisco, Intel, IBM, 
Oracle, et cetera. Mark Zuckerberg himself alluded in his his congressional testimony that after 10 years of, of FANG dominance, you know, the next 10 years and big companies in the next 10 years could, could look different. So ecosystem turnover historically has been high. We expect that to persist. The second point I'd make is, you know, these companies, and this doesn't get talked about a lot, but they are catering to somewhat saturated markets. So if you take Apple, it's a fully penetrated market for high-end smartphones, um, leaving growth more dependent on replacements and services that are attached to, to the phones. But it's hard to move the multiple on that. In the case of Amazon, AWS, which was a real driver for that business, their cloud business, obviously has real competition from Microsoft and, and Google. So growth is going to naturally be slower. And then the companies involved with online advertising, um, you know, that's now 50% of global advertising. So one would expect growth to decelerate uh, over time. So the third uh, comment would be that there is potential for increased regulation, and we're obviously seeing that play out right now. Um, Uncertainty over government regulatory actions is generally not good for corporate decision-making. And we we saw that with Microsoft in the 2000s when it faced various antitrust investigations. Um, And it makes doing M&A, which has historically been a driver of growth for these companies, more difficult. So that regulatory overhang, you know, we we do think um, could persist. Um, so taking all of those comments together, some reasons to feel positive about the FANG, some balancing comments that, you know, give us pause. I, I think that the headline is that passive has become too aggressive and we really need to invest and, and look for opportunities in tech beyond the FANGs. And I'll highlight two areas that, that we're looking at. Um, the first would be in companies outside the U.S. We particularly like local tech leaders in emerging markets. So EM consumers are getting access to fast, ubiquitous Internet for the first time in history. Um, they're also now able to access the Internet via their mobile phones. And this is giving rise to something we call the splinter net effect. So this is local companies applying proven business models from the U.S. in new high growth markets. Um, so examples of these local tech titans would be Mercado Libre, um, which is the Amazon of Latin America, where online penetration is only 5% um, versus 15 to 20 in most developed markets, or C, which is the Amazon of Southeast Asia. Um, and these companies, I would note, are also trying to become leaders in other fields beyond e-commerce. So Mercado Libre is getting into payments and C um, is getting into online gaming. And, and one might argue this would be like investing in Amazon five to 10 years ago with big addressable markets. And then the, the second place would be going further down the market cap spectrum, um, looking at small and mid cap companies versus the mega cap. So we like innovative and differentiated pure play small cap companies that are developing highly differentiated and, and superior technology to service new markets. Um, so an example here would be Ping Identity, which is a, a provider of intelligent identity solutions and is disrupting identity and um, access management market, which is, you know, identity being a a very big focus now. And and this is a very specific provider with a high growth rate and and obviously not something captured uh, when investing um, in the FANGs. Um, And so in summary, while I think the FANGs are are fine franchises to own, again, some reasons to be positive, but certainly some reasons to be concerned. What investors need to do um, is think about allocating some capital away from those dominant franchises in search of new emerging tech leaders, which we can find both outside the U.S. and within the U.S. down the market cap. Katie, I find it really interesting that of the industries that you've highlighted so far, so that being restaurants, retail, and tech, I mean, two of them are presumably 
completely coronavirus losers, except where you highlighted you can find winners. And tech has just developed into the star of 2020 once again, two ends of the spectrum. I mean, between those two spectrums, are there any areas that you would just absolutely stay away from? You think it's too difficult right now to really find something that's worth it to throw capital at? I think it's really important that in this environment and really any environment that investors run balanced portfolios and that they capture both growth and value ideas. And I, I guess my my overarching point here would be that I think it's possible to find winners in, in every sector, but you really have to get behind the right business models. Um, and that difference between winners and losers is going to express itself in every single sector. If you take energy, for example, there's a lot of reasons that everyone listening to this knows that we shouldn't be super excited about the future of energy, and that's reflected in share prices. But what about renewable companies within the energy space? Some of those companies are up 30 to 40 percent, renewable fuel companies, for example, which we think is the future of the energy market. So even in the sectors that are least loved within the market, you can actually find winning franchises if you hunt. And again, you know, you get behind the right business models. I think that's always been important in investing, but this crisis has made that more important than ever. Yeah, Katie, that uh, mention of renewable energy is uh, it's a good segue to the, the topic of ESG. Uh, and for anyone listening who's, I don't know, been asleep for the last five years and doesn't know what that is, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's an, you know, basically investing with uh, the idea of the environment, social issues, and govern- governance issues in mind when you're picking out companies. And I'm kind of fascinated at how you look at that uh, at the ESG world f- through the sort of the goggles of a fundamental investor, because I, I do think there's a case to be made that, hey, if your company is less likely to get, say, a big fine for an environmental issue or uh, you know less likely to be boycotted over a social issue or less likely to you know uh, have the CEO forced out in a governance issue, that type of thing. That there is uh, very much a fundamental case to be made for incorporating ESG factors in in your research. Is that a big part of uh, the reason why ESG is so hot? Is it not just sort of um, a clear investing with a clearer conscience? And not to say there's anything wrong with that. I'm all for that. But is there also, you know, from the work you've done, is there a fundamental case to be made uh, for why this stuff is important? Absolutely. At Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and in particular within our our fundamental equity team, we think that consideration of ESG issues is is often just correlates to quality. Um, And we have a a strong belief, uh, we're long-term investors and have a very strong belief that quality will outperform over time. And so we consider ESG across the entire $60 billion of, of, of assets that we manage, um, in addition to our, our dedicated ESG portfolios, because focus on these issues should be a way to uh, avoid risks, but also to generate alpha uh, for all investors, regardless of, of, of how focused the organization or the individual might be on, on ESG. Um, I'll, I'll take a step back and maybe make a, a couple of quick points uh, about the space. Um, the first would be that we believe very deeply that the world is on the cusp of a sustainable uh, investing revolution. And um, we think it could be one of the biggest investment opportunities uh, ever. Uh, it has the magnitude of the industrial revolution coupled with the speed of the digital revolution and, and a tale from, from COVID. 
you know, how do we account for that? As I mentioned uh, earlier, we, we integrate consideration of ESG issues into all the assets we manage. We also have a lot of idea generation on the back of this uh, emphasis on ESG. So in other words, we invest in solutions providers to ESG issues. And then, of course, we think about this a lot when we're engaging companies. So just from an environmental perspective, um, we think that's going to continue to, to grow in, in, in importance and in emphasis. A winner on this front, by the way, is Europe. So, you know, there's we're, a lot of bad news over time uh, around Europe. Um, but this is actually a, a place where Europe can really excel and own and, and, and succeed. Um, the EU estimates the additional yearly investment required to achieve the EU Green Deal targets, um, which are, are mostly environmental focus, is somewhere between 175 and 300 billion euros uh, for the next couple of decades. And this will be met with a mix of both public and, and private capital, um, so giving rise to a lot of um, interesting opportunities at the company level. And again, Europe, with its combination of um, you know taxes, uh, incentives, government, and academic partnerships, is going to give rise, continue to give rise to a lot of companies that will win in this space. In the U.S., I, I would also just just mention um, we talked about the dominance of the FANGS companies. W- one of the um, knock-on impacts of that, from an ESG perspective, is that when these sizable companies uh, choose to do something about their environmental responsibility, it has unbelievable impacts on the market. Um, so Amazon recently announced that they're going to target 100% renewable power for their operations by 2025. They've actually moved that goal forward. They're currently at 42%. They believe that they'll be carbon neutral by 2040, including using for transportation a lot of electric vehicles. They've already ordered 100,000 units of electric vehicles. Um, and so, you know, these these types of announcements can have, given the scale of these companies, will have an incredible impact. Um, and so that gives all together gives you some sense of just the, the scale of the opportunity in the environmental part. Successful companies will um, integrate the way that they think about environmental sustainability. And then there's also this investment opportunity for us to, to invest in companies that are going to be the solutions providers in this space. Um, I, I will actually give a quick example here on a sustainable environmental company called Ballcorp, which you know may not be uh, known by everybody. It is an aluminum can manufacturer um, relegated to to the boring value bucket uh, for for most of the last ten years. Um, it was it was X growth because. Most products um, were that they made were soft drinks and then uh, domestic beers, which were both effectively rejected by millennials. Um, but they've seized on consumer disgust with the plastic um, in in landfills and oceans, and they've been lobbying more companies to to make what we call the the can king again. Um, now, virgin aluminum is actually quite expensive to make, but aluminum can be recycled forever with no loss of properties. And it's pretty cheap to recycle. So there's a 65% recycling rate of aluminum in the US. We actually recycle 100,000 cans a minute. Um, and it's actually even higher in, in other countries. Um, it has a 95% lower energy consumption um, when recycling aluminum versus making new aluminum. Um, and, and just for co- comparison purposes, the recycling rate of plastic is in the low single digits. And now because of people's focus on moving away from plastic, which is less sustainable, to aluminum, which is more sustainable, volumes are now growing again at 5% um, per year. 
And um, as a result, the, the share price has, has really moved um, upwards uh, qu quite aggressively. And so that's an example of a solutions provider to this environmental issue. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Great points all around, Katie. You know, yeah, you hear a lot about that culture at Costco. And I think, you know, people that work there really treat it as a career, not sort of a, a mick job that you hop from uh, and, and have a lot of turnover. Um, so uh, kudos to them. You did miss a big catalyst for them, Katie, and I'll tell you what it is. Their rotisserie chickens are incredible. Have you had? <laughs> have you guys had one of their rotisserie chickens? They're delicious. Not a rotisserie chicken, but I have been known to sample all those those free samples. The next time we go, I I will. My my husband's actually the the CFO in our family. He tracks our spending, and I do know that we're spending uh, much more now on Costco than than we used to. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll have to add the rotisserie chickens to the shopping list. Yeah, samples are the best part of Costco, but I would imagine that that's had to be uh, pulled back in these days. Yeah. I'm going to start bringing a disguise so I can hit the samples twice and they won't, <laughs> they won't realize it. All right, Sarah, you know what time it is? I think I do. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right, so mine dates back to our conversation that we were having about the FANG stocks and really just mega caps in general. So the statistic is a little bit dated, but it's as of late July. So I'll give you this. And I just find it pretty mind-boggling. Uh, this comes from Michael O'Rourke over at Jones Trading. And he pointed out that so far this year on 62.5% of trading days, the NASDAQ 100 has actually closed in positive territory. And that is a record for any year in the last 34 years. And I think it's just pretty crazy to think that in the year of 2020, we're dealing with the coronavirus, we're dealing with such a deep recession, yet at the same time, the NASDAQ 100 has had its largest share of positive trading days ever, at least up till this point. I gotta hand it to you, Sarah, that one's pretty good. Katie, can you, can you top that one? That's a pretty good crazy thing, though. I would say one of the craziest things that we're seeing in this market is just really atypical behavior for a recession. And so I would I, I would call out here, for example, home builders. During a typical economic downturn, people hold off, uh, unsurprisingly, from buying homes and home builders suffer. Um, however, the home builders have been doing really well, growing profits and, and stocks have, have been rewarded. And, and why? Because in the COVID-specific recession, we've got record low mortgage rates and also mass exoduses from cities. So mortgage applications up 15% and the median listing price of homes up, up 7%. Um, and then, of course, there's also some um, associated uh, companies that are, are benefiting as we spend more time in our existing homes and buy new homes like um, like Sherwin-Williams, for example, um, who, of course, sells paints. 
They are showing uh, paint sales up 21% in the second quarter uh, as more people, again, focused on decorating the homes that they're they're spending more time in, um, which also supports the fact that um, in this uh, quarantine, watching paint dry has actually become uh, an exciting exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, bad, all, we have to get bad. creative, right? Yeah. That's pretty good. The housing data lately has been pretty amazing to watch. I think it's caught a lot of people off guard as well. It is remarkable, yeah. I, well, Katie, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this and get ideas about us repainting the house because <laughs> I cannot stand painting. I, As you said, your, your husband's the CFO. I'm the official house painter of our house. Uh, <laughs> my wife's actually our, our CFO, and I'm, I'm the official house painter and the IT guy. I got to fix all the kids' uh, computers. They let you do that? They, yeah, sort of. They do. It's <laughs> It's usually, you know, if if you restart it and it doesn't fix it, then I'm out of ideas. So I don't know. But that you'd be amazed how many times that fixes it. All right, you guys, you guys came pretty pretty well this this uh, week with the crazy things. I'll give you mine, Sarah. Mine's a few weeks old, I confess, but I can't believe it hasn't come up in the crazy things uh, uh, episode yet or crazy things segment, whatever we call our gimmick. And it's a story from the Financial Times a few weeks ago about what they called mafia bonds. And as their leader of their story says, international investors bought bonds backed by the crime proceeds of Italy's most powerful mafia, according to financial and legal documents. So basically, uh, the mafia in Italy had set up a bunch of sort of fake front companies and then issued bonds, not on the, not on the public markets, but in private markets, um, basically backed by these fake front companies to the tune of 1 billion euros worth of these bonds. Uh, amazing story from the FT. I will say they left out, there's one big important thing they left out. They didn't say what the yield was. If I'm going to buy some mafia bonds, I want you a nice spread. better get a nice yield. <laughs> I want a nice yield. I want a nice spread. They did say that investors in the bonds included pension funds, hedge funds, and family offices, quote, all looking for exotic ways of earning high returns at a time of record low interest rates. So, that is certainly one exotic way. I don't know, Katie, if uh, I don't know how mafia bonds fare in the, in the ESG yeah, world. Yeah, I imagine Probably. that wouldn't fit your ESG bill, right? I don't think it fit the ESG bill. <laughs> and if, if people are looking for better returns, I would encourage them uh, to first look at, at equity markets. We, we've got a, a lot of returns and uh, on offer from some very responsible companies and, and some of them trading at attractive <laughs> valuations. That's right. It's all it's all about risk adjusted returns. Your risk with these bonds is is quite unique, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah from now on, when people <laughs> say uh, or talk about the Tina trade and say there is no alternative because interest rates are so low, Mike's going to go ahead and just point them to mafia bonds. <laughs> mafia bonds. I am I am in New Jersey here, so we you know there might be a uh, a different uh, class of investors interested in these than than your typical. <laughs> okay, a couple weeks old, but that one was worth it. I had Listerine perpetual bonds the other week. Mafia bonds beat that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we all came prepared this week. Housing, mafia bonds, and then also just the NASDAQ continues to make its way onto the list. So with that said, Katie Koch, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. It was really fun. Thanks so much to both of you for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous, and you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.